0: Hello and welcome to listening to the Open Door Philanthropy Conference Special. We brought our microphones down to the Nexus U.S. Summit this year at the United States Institute of Peace, and in plain view of the Lincoln Memorial, over the course of two days, we conducted ten interviews with a diverse array of conference delegates. Some of our guests, like Hank Love from the American Jobs Project, were actively fundraising, and I was able to convince Hank to submit a proposal to the unfunded list that's currently under review. Other guests, like Karen Yanis, were active funders. Karen ran Oprah Winfrey's foundation for 10 years. I was able to convince Karen to join the evaluation committee. We had a bunch of other cool folks sit down with us who were a little bit harder to find. On a personal note, this was just an absolute blast for me. Uh, I got the chance to interview some of my favorite people in a beautiful setting. We had amazing conversations. I hope you'll listen and understand that these represent just a microcosm of my own participation in Nexus over the years. I've been attending this conference for almost nine years now. Each conversation you listen to here, whether I've just met our guest or known them for years, is reminiscent of hundreds of conversations I've had in the halls of Nexus over the years. People ask me often how I've built such an impressive network. Uh, And I can tell you that it's because of conversations like these. At the very least, I think you'll find them entertaining. Please note that these were recorded live on site in a less than ideal acoustic circumstance. You can pretty much always hear me because I'm basically Shrek. Uh, But sometimes our guests are a little bit harder to hear. We'll do our best to make transcripts available since every word of these conversations were important and interesting. Uh, But for now, I hope you enjoy. This is day two at the nexus u.s summit i'm at the u.s institute of peace in washington dc uh with one of my favorite philanthropists candace cook welcome candace
1: thank you so much david it's an honor <laughs> to be here with you uh
0: i assure you the honor is mine uh why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself where are you from candace
1: i am originally from atlanta georgia
0: atlanta i've never heard of it where is that East of here?
1: Southeast, yes. Well, south of D.C. for sure. Absolutely. And I have lived up and down the East Coast. So Mm -hmm. home has always been the state of Georgia. But I've had additional homes on top of that home foundation. So I lived in Virginia, Tennessee, Texas, California for a brief stint, and New York. And New York is now where I am making my family's home. And between there and Atlanta, that's kind of, those are our two home bases if one can have such a thing.
0: Perhaps. Perhaps. (laughs) Uh, Tell me about your family.
1: So I come from a family, interestingly enough, my mom was from D.C. or is from D.C. She grew up Mm -hmm. in D.C. She went to boarding school, but she's from D.C. And my dad grew up in a very small town in Georgia called Coweta County. And it's in Noonan. And so Noonan is actually the exact location. But they've always been very passionate about, my mom more so in terms of activities, but my dad in terms of behind the scenes action. And so together, they infused in our our family a sense of ownership over your place in society, whether that's financial contribution or time, in most cases both. And that it's not a luxury to be able to do that, it's a necessity. And it's something that you are not necessarily called to do, it's something you're drafted for. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a responsibility of mine since I was a child. And when I would say, mommy, I don't have any money to give to this particular cause, then she would say, all right, well then we need to find another way to do it. And if that meant dropping me off, Miles and I am not exaggerating, but it's not miles is in 10 miles miles is in maybe two and then rolling the car slowly down the street So that I would get up and pick up trash because she would say someone dropped trash We can't have trash in the neighborhood and I kept thinking okay Well, they should be the ones to come and pick it up and my mom's position was someone has to pick it up and you're here You can do it This is your role. Take ownership of this space. And my dad did not make me pick up trash down the street, but my my mom did. She would make me do petitions. The state
0: of Maine made me do that once.
1: Oh, oh gosh. Yes, I was not. Mine was was under a different, under a different um, guise. But yeah, and so because of that, it really, it spoke to me. And granted. I think from a visceral level as a child, there are things that can be very attractive about philanthropy from the activity side, right? Not necessarily the doing the work part, but there was this social component. And so in my household, what really sort of drew me in was this, there's always a nexus, speaking of nexus, of social Innovation and activity and then also doing the work. And one isn't a substitute for the other, but both can amplify a message. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was sort of home life
0: and in you, the philanthropy space. And you are now a mother yourself?
1: I am. I have a seven month old son. And my hope will he
0: be picking up trash soon?
1: I, I cannot wait for <laughs> him to pay. I'm from the South where you are doing yard work and you are your house should be wherever I, your home is
0: we do yard work in Maine as and, well
1: and it's well I can tell you in New York that's not necessarily a thing fair but it will be a thing in my household I can't wait I want to clean I mean honestly I, I I cannot wait for this child to and I hope he has passion for it that's my biggest concern because it for me it really changed My ability to feel that I could have agency over my voice and things that I cared about. And so I want him to have agency and and feel the sense of worth and see the value in others and feel that keeping things clean and neat and and the the garbage wasn't about it being in front of our house. The garbage is it's in the community's house. And so we want the community to Mm -hmm. look and feel The way we feel
0: that it should feel. Well, the specific problem of trash on the ground aside, I think it's a very important lesson, uh, one that a lot of kids, particularly American kids, don't learn. Is that um, in order for it to be picked up, someone has to do it. Absolutely. These things don't just happen. Right. There's absolutely nothing that just happens. Nothing. It's all because someone did it. And you can be that someone, And particularly if you see something you don't like. Uh, you can be the one to uh, to solve that. I mean, there's too many too many people who see things they don't like and say well, Or maybe that's for somebody else to solve or right. or the, or worse. There's nothing that can be done about that We have to Absolutely. just we have to just accept that so uh, uh, The the baby is seven months. What is his name? The baby's name
1: is Harry the fourth so he's he's a joy I mean, I think every parent or most, I won't speak for every parent, but I don't think it's uncommon for someone to say, my child is advanced. I will <laughs> sit here and say, I honestly think this child is-
0: I'm sure that he is.
1: Phenomenal. He is, <laughs> he is a joy and he is a blessing and I don't take him for granted. I think it's a privilege to be his mother. And the role of parenthood for me really is not so much to create him or to try and shape him into being the person that I want him to be. I really want to shape him to be the best him that he can be, whoever he's meant to be in this world, and teach him those lessons. Because if I don't teach him the lessons, the world is a hard, rough place. So I want you to learn how to handle the hard, rough place without becoming hard and rough yourself and there hardened are, by life. That's
0: a good point. There are other people that are that will teach him if you don't.
1: That, and, <laughs> and they will not be as, as firm and loving mm-hmm. as I intend on being. They'll just be firm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, what is it that you uh, that you do other than raising Harry the fourth, ah. and uh, probably doing some um, caretaking of Harry the third, I yeah. assume. <laughs> I I think they're
1: both full time jobs in and of themselves. If I'm perfectly <laughs> honest, I honestly you know sign me up for cloning. There's so many things we're doing in technology we have not mastered that yet. If we're
0: gonna clone anyone, I think we should start with Candace. Park.
1: I'm willing to be the litmus test to see how this <laughs> is gonna go. I, so outside of what happens in the home, I also am a managing partner at a law firm. We're we're not a traditional law firm in the sense of I hate to use just, but I really would put air quotes and say just legal work. Really what we do is at the intersection of business technology entertainment and we recognize the fact that things are not done in silos anymore. And so for people to be able to have strategic plans, we go from soup to nuts in the business strategy, the legal advisory services, and also synergistic relationships that can help them scale what they're doing. And so I I find a lot of pride in that work. We do intellectual property, but we also just really do brass tacks, amazing legal innovation across the board in terms of the way things are done, using the law that already exists, but finding ways to make it applicable to clients so that they can grow in a beautiful way. Um, Or even if it's not so beautiful, sometimes it's not Look, this is where the sausage is made. Let's just say they can grow in a smart, strategic, empowering way that serves the business and the client very well. Mm. And so that keeps me extraordinarily busy. We're very proud of the work that's happened. Our clients have won amazing awards, which isn't in itself a testament to our work, but it is a testament to... What scaling smartly can look like, and that society benefits from great business and legal strategy. So that's the that's the day, that's the night, that's the reason. You know, I I've got the bags that only you can see, <laughs> and the rest of the world can just hear about.
0: There are there are no bags.
1: But, oh, well, there are my... they're under they're under my eyes. <laughs> no.
0: Uh, do you remember Candace how you and I met?
1: I did, and I think it's one of my favorite stories. We met, no, it's true, Uh, during really what I find to have been a life-changing event for me, we met going to Israel via the Schusterman Foundation.
0: First met at the Newark... Public airport.
1: That is that our flight was out of gate
0: mid- 18B. It got delayed for two hours. That's so, so true. we spent we got to spend some extra time together at Chatting, Newark Airport. Chatting, waiting
1: for, and we had different um, facilitation groups. So this was a way for us to all sort of get to know each other. We were in the same group, but it was one of those things where everyone was able to commingle in that moment. And, and we had out.
0: we were the small in the small group together You mean yeah. and, and E Davis?
1: That's so true. Oh, well that was fun. We were. It was awesome um, and. That trip really allowed us to not only have what I think now, or no one will be able to experience, what we were able to do, sitting down with Shimon Prez, and, and it was just—it was a blessing. It was humbling. It was so
0: for for clarity that we went on a uh, reality global trip. Glo- reality global two thousand and fifteen, yeah. which was a uh, all expenses paid trip to Israel for. Global impact entrepreneurs. Yes. The uh, the trips have now become like a lot more specific. Like it's for people who work in the food industry or the music industry or sports or or, tech. or fashion or tech, yeah. or whatever. Ours was far more nebulous. It was just global impact. And it was. <laughs> but it was nonprofit leaders and, uh, philanthropists and things and like that across the
1: board, private sector as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was so interesting is that
0: it was a, just such an impressive group.
1: applied, and they selected I want to say fifty, and which speaks to philanthropic work. At the time, we were all connecting. Careers and what people were doing in their personal space did not come up in conversations. It was truly when we were leaving, where people were able to get a better understanding of, oh, so wait, this is what you do almost in your real life? Because the, the work was what was setting the tone and the mission of really understanding Israel and understanding Honestly, true giving, which was exhibited, it can't be exhibited better than the way Lynn Schusterman does it. Um, it. She really is just a blessing for so many. But I think it was humbling to see with love how bringing people together who truly want to change the world and on a global scale, uh, mm-hmm. making making the world a better place, making the world kind again.
0: Takun Alam. Uh, um, Do you Tikkun remember that from the Alam, trip? yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> and Ahava. Yeah, it's, it's truly recognizing that, and I think those are the things that stay with you for the rest of your life, and those are the mm-hmm. things that you want to share with others so that people who can't physically be in that space feel it based on your presence in their life.
0: Was that your first time in Israel?
1: That was my first time in Israel, and my first time—I have to say this separately—on the Syrian border. You know, we were there before. At the time, the I'm news about was to
0: tell like, a slightly embarrassing story. I, I do you remember? Do you I know what I'm about to, to tell?
1: Hear that. I think uh, it may be about a drone or. A bird. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: It's actually not about a drone. Oh. oh
1: okay.
0: <laughs> um. The, so yeah, we as you uh, the uh, reality trips usually most of them go to that. Um, it was the what was that building? The Russian headquarters during yes. during the sixty seven war, I yes. guess. A very old abandoned military compound near the Syrian border. Uh, it's, um, it's one that, just the uh, take the geopolitics out of it. Mm-hmm. It's just a spectacular location, yeah. just in terms of the view and the way it looks. This is up in the Absolutely. Galilee region. Uh, but we also, uh, you could see Syria from there. And, uh, and notably here, we heard uh, yeah. some bombs yeah. uh, while we were there, which I'm pretty sure that's the only time I've ever heard uh, active bombs. And then they took us to a uh, mountain nearby. I forget the name of that mountain. We went up to the top and there was a bird uh, hovering.
1: <laughs> Depending on who you ask, there was a bird was or, a, bird. A, dr- or a drone. I know what
0: a bird looks like. <laughs> Anyway uh, I think possibly because you the I think maybe the bombs had shook you a little bit, uh, but you were convinced that that was a drone I, I, <laughs> and she starts screaming that 's a, a drone there 's a drone there. And everyone's like, "No, Candace, that's a bird."
1: I am from South City, Atlanta, City people, and I
0: have to
1: tell you, when you witnessed what I witnessed,
0: it was very obviously was a bird. I was not
1: waiting around to find out whether or not it was a bird no. or she, a drone. You
0: didn't care so much. You were. I if said, there's a one percent chance that that's a drone, I'm out of here. We are boarding mission all. We are <laughs> we
1: are a mission. I'm videotaping, and we are out. That was that was truly, and it was one of those. It's the juxtaposition of. We were in an air-quote safe space, but within view, you could see people who were, at the time the press was categorizing these grand exodus and the refugee crisis as a crisis that was about economics and that was about people looking for new jobs and new opportunity. And I could see with my own two eyes. No one's looking for a job. No one's looking for new opportunity. They are looking to live. A job would be nice. Opportunity would be great. But in the immediate present, I am looking not to have my home and my children massacred. And I was seeing the smoke rising from areas. Damascus was not far at all from where we were, where cities, where individuals were doing, quite frankly, what we're doing right now. And that's over. Or you live in this reality of a combination of my life is in jeopardy, but I have to go on. And that exists in Israel, mm-hmm. um, this balance, and of, of your life goes on, but there's always this undercurrent. It, ex- it exists throughout the Middle East. And we were watching it play out, most specifically in Syria, and it was heart-wrenching and painful, and it also changed my viewpoint of, of what we consume as media consumers, because what we were getting in reporting truly centered on people need to come to America for jobs. No, this was about safety and security, and our role as philanthropists is not only to Engage with those communities, but also to make sure that the information that people get who aren't able to be boots on the ground in those areas and see truly what's happening, that we can deliver this message out of respect for what they're going through Mm -hmm. consistently and fairly so that not only to bring in assistance and aid where it's possible, but also enlightenment and changing the discourse around what someone's seeking to take from someone and really more so what we're seeking to give to others.
0: Are you familiar with MacArthur's 100 and Change program?
1: I don't believe that I am.
0: Uh, So uh, we are fortunate uh, MacArthur grantees. We are probably the, because we probably got the smallest I grant they believe, gave last year. I do
1: believe <laughs> but, that this is something that is worth not only noting, but celebrating. This is huge. Thank you, MacArthur Foundation.
0: Thank you, MacArthur <laughs> Foundation.
1: This is an exceptional day of congratulations. Yes, I'm
0: quite, I'm very pleased with it. Well, uh, but don't they, we
1: all love that, how, how he humbly <laughs> brought that in. That is Phenomenal.
0: Please well, the, explain. Well, there. So, as I mentioned, we have we got one of their smaller grants from last year. Wow. Uh, but they uh, they did a, um, a sort of historic granting program last year called Hundred and Change. Okay. And they were going to give a hundred million dollars to a project um, that would have great impact, a large amount of scale, and uh, uh, there were a lot of as you imagine, a lot of people applied. Uh, and I, what I kind of like about it is it was a, a fairly transparent process. So I think the the last ten finalists, mm-hmm. their final interview. They recorded it just like this, and you can listen to their like to them trying to pitch, them making a pitch for the hundred million and all the good work that they would do with it. Uh, and the, one of the I wanted to mention it because the the winner was uh, Sesame Street, the international version. I'm uh, loving it. And they them. they're going to use the money to make a, a Syrian specific version of Sesame Street. So Syrian outfits, Syrian characters, Syrian names.
1: And I know people. This sounds so cliche. It's not cliche. It's, it's- Runs the risk but you can seeing yourself in media and media that it's the if you you can if you can see it you can be it right. I can see the it's sun true. just
0: went behind a cloud and now I can see again.
1: It's very bright here at the U.S. I, Institute of Peace. You all can't <laughs> see it, but we have had I mean. It's been glaring, but I think that...
0: I have been squinting this entire interview, and now I can see you. This is... No, it, it's true.
1: I do feel a great relief at, at not having to wear shades. I wasn't wearing shades, so, you know, my cornea says thank you. But it's it's so critical for not everyone. It, it, it is important for everyone, but I think most specifically for children to be able to have that sense of normalcy. I, there's a woman... I
0: also learn how to read and count
1: learning how to read and count, but just a sense of doing that in a space where something seems similar when everything else is no longer similar. You're you're divided from cultural references that you know or that your family knows. So they're trying to make a way for you in a space that is not necessarily their comfort zone. And seeing someone who's nice and kind and generous and is doing things that you may not be able to do in your home because language is a barrier. So you're learning to count, and you're learning to read, and and you're learning about community. But your community is is phenomenal. So I'm I'm thrilled to hear that. I was a huge fan too. of Sesame Street. Oh, it's incredible. And I mean, long live Maria. I felt I mean, she I feel like she was <laughs> she's a personal friend. I mean, I, don't we all know Maria and Oscar and Big Bird and Gordon? Snuffleupagus and Go- of course <laughs> Gordon? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm trying.
0: Who was my favorite? Probably Snuffleupagus.
1: And Gordon, we had two Gordons actually. I'm old oh, I remember. To remember there was that. a Holly Robinson Pete's dad played Gordon on Sesame Street. Yeah, and and on philanthropy and and motherhood, sort of the synergy of that. I have to say, I watched her documentary, her television show. She has a show throughout my pregnancy. I had what I can only describe as wicked insomnia. Uh, towards the end and what she's done with the Holly Rod Foundation as a combination of autism awareness and also Parkinson's disease which runs mm. in her family and really shedding light on the science behind it on the Parkinson's side oh health awareness in terms of genetically if this is something that you may be statistically more inclined to get, what that looks like for your family. Her brother, she found out on the show, now also has Parkinson. so imagining that from his mother's perspective. Um, and then also what she's done in terms of how we are raising children with special needs in a society and advocating for them was incredibly powerful. And I kept looking because the show from both a philanthropist side and as a human being side was about releasing your expectations and accepting things and meeting them where where they are and then how can you best guide and direct it. So with her, her daughter, she sent her off to college and you get this whole top school application and you, you know, your daughter is a rock star. Your daughter has a twin who has special needs and that he's watching as all of this is happening in college and being this Rock star in that same way that wasn't in the cards for him. But what can we do where he can be the rock star and he can have the sense of agency over himself to not feel that his choice is less than his sister's choice? Mm-hmm. And it was really just they were so open and honest. And where she gets the energy because she doesn't just have those two children. I want to say she has five kids, and I just kept thinking like, is this human? She can't be human, but.
0: You know, I have zero kids, and I can barely handle it.
1: It's amazing, and so you know.
0: I when you taking start. that
1: back to Gordon, Gordon's daughter. So is just a to rock be clear, star.
0: original Gordon is Holly Robinson Pete's father.
1: I want to say the original Gordon, yes. And and if there, if it's the inverse, then he, I want to say he was that her father was the longest running Gordon. So with the, I say <laughs> he
0: had
1: the bald head. And,
0: the longest running. Gordon. Yeah,
1: he's the one I remember as a kid from the late 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 the end of the 70s not you know the middle though there's that's
0: <laughs> that is so, not possible that doesn't mathematically the, make sense kids. I wish. because you are clearly 25 years old and so there's no way that that
1: at heart I am at, at a heart I am, heart, I am. Uh,
0: so uh, one of the reasons uh, I had that was my the trip we went to Israel on well, that was my first trip to Israel and uh, I never went on birthright uh, mostly because I didn't want to so I grew up as a Jew in Maine where we don't have a whole lot of Jewish community I am Jewish I'm just as Jewish as everybody else but when you're not like you weren't I didn't go to temple a lot I don't necessarily know all of the rituals or prayers I can't even name all of the like some of the holidays I'm like I've never heard of that one um, but uh, you know uh, like I said, I'm ju- just as Jewish as everybody else. Okay. Uh, but and
1: we sat through a talk <laughs> where that was emphasized. today. Yes. So we, yes.
0: Uh, well, I uh, actually I wasn't so sure that I uh, was as Jewish as everybody else before the trip, and I know I now know that. Um, but uh, I also like uh, as a result, uh, Jews that have a, a lot of uh, Jewish community, like people who went to Jewish day school mm-hmm. and Jewish summer camp, and like do know all of their prayers and everything would often make, I would often feel uncomfortable, right? So the idea of going on a birthright trip with with just all sorts of Jews who knew more about it than I did, right? Didn't seem like a whole lot of fun. So uh, what I really like about what Jusman does uh, is that uh, there were some, there were Jews on the trip, uh, none particularly devout. Um,
1: There were Christians on the trip, uh, I was Christians,
0: uh, two Muslims. Yes. Uh, and uh, and 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 you and you were that you are not Jewish. Do I assume correctly? Yeah. I think though that you love the neighbor and you care about repairing the world. So. I, that's that's one hundred
1: percent true. And you know, I always so, say, I think the religions are cousins, right? It's like sitting at a big familial table. The, the religions are cousins, and just like any family, there's. Spoka. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and which is the heading? It's, it's family. That's. That's family um, for our listeners who may not. It be is aware. the
0: if you don't speak Yiddish. I think a large portion of our listeners do speak Yiddish. You'd oh, be surprised. <laughs> I love
1: it. Well, then I don't need to translate my, uh, it for the it listeners. Was my it was,
0: uh, Yiddish was my grandfather's first language. You may remember we had that when we briefly talked about uh, when we were at the kibbutz. Yeah. They talked about the decision that Israel made originally to uh, speak Hebrew to bring back Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it had been basically a dead language, and they, they brought it back, and now everyone, now it's the main language in Israel, which is... They did it in one generation, which is very impressive. Uh, but most Jews were speaking Yiddish at the time, uh, and uh, including my grandfather, who actually uh, re- resented that decision because they were sort of taking his language away from him. So he made sure to teach me all the Yiddish swears, <laughs> which is basically everything in Yiddish. It's all it's pretty much a swear-based uh, language. Uh, anyway, uh, to, I'm just—I'm curious to know why uh, you know you uh, are not uh, Jewish. Uh, Israel is not your homeland. I don't—I don't. I don't th- maybe you think that. I don't know. What, uh, uh, what? What? What made you want to go on that trip from some Jewish foundation?
1: I had heard amazing things about the Schusterman Foundation, so that speaks to your, reput- your, your reputation for you. I had mm-hmm. heard just phenomenal things, and I'd also heard phenomenal things about the trip. And what's interesting, what people don't know, is Israel had been on one of my, my bucket list of places I wouldn't go. Um, wouldn't go? No, wanted what? to oh, go okay. to, yeah. And so when I found out about it, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, my bucket list. And I didn't know it was going to be all expense paid. I just knew... There's an application process, you go. I didn't know what the residual effects of that were. If they were going to say, okay, for you to attend, you need to pay X, Y, Z. All I knew was, my bucket list. This is a sign. I'm supposed to be applying to this. And I didn't know you know what the application process would be, how it would turn out, but I'd heard amazing things. And as a, you know, we've spoken to the fact that I'm a Christian, Christians should be seeing Israel. G- I want to see where Jesus walked. I would like to also, and see we did. Him. We saw where he was buried. We saw where he walked. Uh, it we was, saw where
0: he met the, Samar- the good Samaritan.
1: Yes, we saw exactly. And so, from a religious standpoint, there are so, and that's why you know the dialogue and the discourse is so critically important because there's such a beautiful shared history. And I wanted to see this beautiful shared history, and. It really, it was more than what I ever could have imagined. Um, I went in expecting it to be awesome and it was phenomenally awesome. And it was eye-opening and it was valuable. And I truly believe that while I was able to obtain a lot of historical context and knowledge, I don't think there is enough reading I could do to become an expert on the scenarios that the Middle East is faced with now. I wouldn't Uh, even begin to touch There are experts in this
0: building here at the U.S. Institute of Peace who still have a lot to learn about that.
1: And I just, I think it's so immense and so humbling. And what that really showed me was that really what I was there to do was listen and learn and teach ahava in my way coming back and sharing the message that that was the undercurrent and the undertone of everything that I experienced I mean in keeping in mind I we sat down with children who were also from Palestine and from Israel and who were seeing I remember that kid they were discussing the world that they see and that's the world I believe they deserve to see and I don't think it will be our I don't I don't know when they will see it But I had so much hope and so much faith in the future that it was moving and important. And I felt that that was a trip that I needed to take because otherwise I didn't even realize how the media was shaping and misshaping conversations. And Mm -hmm. going there, I was able to hear facts, unfiltered very, I mean, and, and I know it's very difficult for people to believe that when they hear Lynn Schusterman sent you to Israel, certainly she provided a filtered context. And no more than the length of your eyes shades colors, right? So mm-hmm. it was for me to see. It was for me to learn. I was given a list of books I could read. People were very honest in their conversation. The children spoke their truth. And it was meaningful in that life exists in the gray, right? And and the goal is to find peace in the gray in the midst of all of that and what uh-huh. that really looks like for people who are living it. And also hearing, I mean, the most humbling part for me was we were walking through a museum and we had this small, petite woman who was going through and she was showing everything. And Is this
0: Yad Vashem or the art museum? Yad Vashem. And that later lady was, on... That lady was great.
1: Later on, come to find out that her husband and child...
0: Yeah, she's a famous... I forget the... Yeah, the movie, she... She was a really big deal. The surgeon?
1: No, that her, her, husband? her husband and daughter at the wedding, the entire family had come into town, and they had a ritual of going to go get coffee every morning on a certain day, it was the day her daughter was set to get married. So the father and the daughter went to the coffee shop and on that day, a bomb exploded. And the, the what would have been a wedding was a funeral. And she's walking through and every, you know, people who knew knew who she was, but no one wanted to have that exchange because this is sort of her, her safe space in terms of showing the museum. But it puts into context that in the midst of everything, life is still happening, and and her life was changed. In, I mean, th- no no one should be sacrificing their family. Um, no,
0: certainly not. And we so, are at uh, thirty minutes. I have um, a couple more questions. On okay, yes. Yeah, so that um, was
1: that was the humbling moment. <laughs>
0: Uh, for the, me, the, the reality
1: of the entire like how the
0: entire trip was how this looks
1: like. in real life. Uh,
0: and I'll, I'll say I'm I, I'm remembering, um, and you may remember we we heard from a survivor in the morning before we went into Yad Vashem. His name was Asher.
1: Oh, yes. Which
0: is Hebrew for survivor. Uh, and um, I, I had uh, I had heard um, uh, from survivors a lot. I was involved in a with Rachel uh, fundraising for survivors in America that live beneath the poverty line. Uh, and I am, um, uh, a lot of my uh, people I'm related to uh, survived that as well. Uh, many did not. Um, according to my uncle, Hitler killed 35 of us. Uh, and uh, But every time I had seen a, so it was kind of like it wasn't really, I mean, Asher was very impressive, uh, but that was not the first time I'd heard a survivor talk, mm-hmm. right? And so I knew, like, I knew what he was, most of what he was talking about. He had some fairly interesting, he had a rough go of it. Yeah. It was uh, generally harder for the boys. Um, I mean, he was working uh, when he was working in a 6 or 7 in a, a working camp. Um, and I remember, I think, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was you, something I'd never really heard anyone say, uh, I may uh, choke up a little bit, uh, was that uh, your takeaway was, you know, that um, if Hitler had been successful, that means that you wouldn't have gotten to meet all the Jews on the trip. Yeah. Including, <laughs> including yeah, me. it's true. Uh, and I don't know, I had never heard that... Um, sentiment before had a lot of uh, made me feel very good Uh, and I am glad as well that uh, that um, at least some of us made it through that
1: yeah
0: Um, so um uh, I am, uh, like I said, uh, been involved in Jewish causes and the Jewish fundraising world for a long time. Uh, that's how I was able to network my way into the Tushman trip. I do not think I applied. <laughs> <laughs> we that does not sound big, like
1: we are not all big time <laughs> like you. We have to go through and and it that's sound a like great segue I... <laughs>
0: into
1: sort of the work that I do. Yes, we've got to apply our way in. No, um, I. Philanthropy for me, and, and I want you to finish because yeah. I... I well, so, like the, so the,
0: the, the Jewish uh, foundation world and how Jewish funding works makes a lot of sense to me because I've done it for a while. It's a fairly organized community. I have uh, uh, worked on non-Jewish causes. I worked at a, in, in D.C. One of my early jobs was at the Seed Foundation here in town, which mm-hmm. we have a school in Anacostia, and I'm, I believe every single student in the history of that school has been African-American. Yeah, definitely. Um uh, I I uh, I mean, there are white folks who live in Anacostia, but they're not going to the. the they're probably going to some private school in, somewhere else. True story. My mom <laughs> lived
1: in Anacostia mm-hmm. with my grandmother. She went to boarding school, but. Yeah. Yeah, right. Mar- it's a completely different community now, and I feel like it's probably had six or seven lives since then. My grandmother now lives with us.
0: Parts are quite nice.
1: But it's. Uh, it has a bad reputation. But. It's It's. It's quite an interesting, yeah. It's quite an interesting dynamic. In so terms we worked of economic with,
0: we worked with support. some African American philanthropists uh, back then, and uh, particularly as a uh, as Sheila Jackson is one yeah. of the bigger ones here in town to, yeah. from BET. Yeah. Um, and uh, it seemed to me that it was just mostly individual donors mm-hmm. so I don't I don't think I can name an African American foundation except possibly the Holly Robinson Pete Foundation which I just learned about
1: and but if you, I'm
0: uh, I am I know that you know more about that world uh, than I do so yes. I just how does African-American philanthropy work?
1: Well I always cautioned about speaking for a whole but I can say well, I assume you my... represent
0: all black folks my. <laughs> Is that incorrect? You're not the ambassador?
1: There are, there are moments when I, I wish I did, but no, I do not. They,
0: you could, your, your people could I, do worse. I do not. If we're gonna appoint one, it should be you.
1: But I will <laughs> say, there are, so the first billionaire, uh, black billionaire, honestly, his daughter's name is Christina Lewis, and the Lewis Foundation is actually in Baltimore. And he was an attorney, graduated from Harvard. There are buildings that Harvard named after him. And he essentially was doing, working Wall Street, doing mergers and acquisitions. His book, which still is a great read, regardless of race, is called Why Should White Boys Have All the Fun? And it's all about him going in and breaking down doors and barriers as this Wall Street attorney who was doing amazing things. And now his daughters, he has two daughters, his daughters are now... Doing that found and his wife, his wife, um, his wife is a powerhouse. So his widow has continued to do amazing work um, on his behalf. I want to say, and I could be misspeaking. I can't remember how he passed. I'm inclined to say, I don't want to misspeak, mm-hmm. but however he passed, uh, it was sudden, and so his wife is a, a super powerhouse who. Supports. you know, they have a home in East Hampton and and a home in New York, in the city, and they support a vast array, not only their foundation, but a lot of individual art, philanthropic organizations as well, and education organizations. And her daughter has now created a coding tech foundation and organization herself, which she uses to educate boys of color in the tech field. And so, but... They are, I mean, preeminent philanthropists. And then the way I want to say our community works, or what I've witnessed uh, in my very short 39 years on this earth, uh, there's so much culturally and historically that has not been, has been underserved within the black community and not by our own doing, right? And so because of that, when things need to be a collaboration, they will be. For instance, the museum, and sort of making sure that before anyone's going to take us seriously, let's do a groundswell and get money together now so mm-hmm. that we're able to do it. Um,
0: have you been, by the way? She's talking about the new African American History Museum here in I, D.C.
1: Yes, we are. So I... It's ha- incredible. I'm going in April. I have two tickets. I wanted to go this trip. It's we still hard to get We wanted to put a group together, and unfortunately, and what's... what's my parents went as part of sort of the opening but no I have not I have not gone and I, I wasn't on a waiting list but when they opened up the tickets April was the first date I could get and I think I tried to get it as soon as I knew I was coming here and so I, I cannot wait to go I think it's a narrative that needs to be shared I, I the brutality and it's interesting because what I think differs from the black community and the Jewish community is media has been very strong in terms of film and narration so that you should see... If you have not seen a film that focuses on or addresses some form of the Holocaust, I don't know where you've been. Like, I I feel like... (laughs) I don't know. It's the
0: most documented event in human history, they say.
1: And with black history, specifically...
0: There might be fewer films about slavery. There,
1: and there's a, it's a delicate balance because what we did not want to have happen is that the conversation surrounding black people, is the parameters are constantly slavery. But then what gets lost is truly the brutality. We're able to romanticize exactly what happened, and we, we don't go through children actually being taken from their mothers what it looks like when people are chattel. We romanticize, you know, the Sally Hemings relationship without actually saying she was the half-sister who was 13 years old of Thomas Jefferson's wife. And at 13, despite the fact she was owned by him, there's no there's no consent. You know, it's it's a story of rape. It's not a story of, of a love story. Um, and so there's this delicate balance of historical context and, and really illustrating the brutality of It wasn't beautiful dresses and house slaves. It's whippings, beatings, rape, losing your children, having children with your rapist, having those children sold, being amputated for trying to run away. But then if that narrative is pushed too much to the forefront, true facts surrounding the rise, despite all of that, gets lost. You know, if you use a golf tee created by a black man or a black person, refrigerator, the stoplight, you know, all is of the those... The golf
0: tee invented by an Yes, av-way? and
1: the broom. I mean, there are things like the that. The broom? The broom. And, and what people miss is <laughs> a lot of the that's, all, that's a good one and the ownership, <laughs> potato chips. I mean, it's...
0: And the peanuts, right? They told me about the peanut in school. It's,
1: and and <laughs> it's one of those or how it's processed, right? And what people miss is, well, how in the world, why don't they own the patents? Well, you can not if you don't have freedom, right? So one, your owner gets the residual, which is where sort of those reparation conversations come in. And two, invention is the product of necessity so if you're the person who's doing the work who's going to be creating these products to make that work make more sense and so Mm. you know there's this balance of how those stories are told and actually who was telling those stories and so what you find is that within the black community there is a sense of wanting history to be acknowledged honestly and truthfully And being in a position to actually share that story, which is a completely different thing, but unfortunately we haven't had that seat at the table, so that's been missing. And then running the risk of telling one story too much. you know, I could understand when people said, which is contrary to what we just said about Holocaust films, when people were like, I do not need to see 12 Years a Slave every single year. There is another narrative that can be told. Um, But with that being said, there are people who miss that. You know, I assume everyone knows about Freedom Riders. That's an assumption that's not based in truth. Um, we, not everyone does. And Or acknowledge the work and the death that happened with children who are fighting for their right to be seen. Not seen in a visual sense, seen as humans. You know, we're still fighting for that. And so there's this... Duality and it's not just you know two things. There's the spectrum of what we need to do to properly address needs in our community, but also recognizing that we have our community, but we are also members of other communities. So it tends to be a yes, absolutely. a shared across the board spectrum, making sure to pay attention to schools, particularly schools that are underserved, where for no fault of their own systemic oppression has set them up quite frankly, 12 years behind everyone else via lack of resources, lack of tax dollars being allocated to these students, lack of private donors who say, we see something in these kids. If you don't see the children as children to begin with, you're not seeing the possibility in them either. And so trying to feed those gaps is a concentrated effort but then also saying but we care about museums as well we care about the met we care about we are we are members of a greater society mm-hmm. and so we have to you know show up there too so sadly we haven't been able to concentrate holistically on just our community but we work very hard to have a balance of engagement in the greater society while also saying, this is, this is something that we're seeing. And, and also, it's, we have not had the luxury of having the, the public-facing news embrace things that have been devastating in historically black communities serviced in the same way. You know, we are now talking about a national opioid crisis when this was the black community we decided we were going to have a war on drugs we completely broke up families Mm -hmm. we have we have taken children out of their homes because they were selling drugs drugs specifically being marijuana we have now legalized marijuana and have not found a way to share in the wealth of children who are doing it. And I'm not saying and saying that children should have been selling drugs, but I do think that we have, as a nation have very short memories when it comes to how we treat one class of individuals and how we treat others, and that there are repercussions for that, and those repercussions aren't pretty. And so philanthropists of color find themselves having to come in and say social justice is something we don't have the luxury of saying it's something we do for fun. I don't want my seven-month-old, to be shot. And Mm -hmm. the reality of that is that... I also do
0: not want little Hank to be shot.
1: And the truth is, he lives in a very good neighborhood, and where is the most dangerous place for a black male to live? In a very good neighborhood, because the assumption is he shouldn't live there. And so those aren't things that I can say. I would, I mean, sadly, I would rather put my money in things that are a little bit more light and fun. My work is hard enough. I want to enjoy my philanthropic engagement. but I don't have the luxury of picking and choosing at this point in history. I hope, you know, my grandchildren will. My grandparents are able to see a lot more than what they were able, you know, I had one grandmother who was, you know, very blessed and fortunate. My, uh, my paternal grandmother was a domestic. And so, All of her children went to college. All of her grandchildren, you know, essentially went to Ivy League schools and graduate schools and did exceptionally well against all odds. While she was cleaning for a Klansman, I mean, that is the build takes a lot. You know, education was their primary focus and and ownership, right, Mm -hmm. owning land and all of that. And so, you know, my mom had a different upbringing, but it's the reality of that is very humbling and also shows that it is there before the grace of god go i you know i i don't think black people traditionally can say it's the luck of the draw but even within very fortunate families it's luck i had the right parents i had parents who you know, we're very loving and engaging. And if we called my dad right now, regardless of what he's doing, he will pretend like he wasn't doing anything and was waiting for this call. My mom <laughs> will not pretend she was not doing anything. We will get to the point, but then she lovingly and engagingly will will take the time. She has mentor- mentees still, you know, and her she has, you know, a child and a grandchild. I thought I'd keep her busy enough, but she thinks it's important to go and tutor young children and bring them to the Capitol and do all of these things. And she does it because she truly believes she's responsible for every child. You know, when she sees any child, regardless of color, that could be her kid. And so that child deserves a chance and it shouldn't be about luck. And the black community is, you know, it's to our detriment, we are very forgiving. You know, there's a quote, if any other group had had what's been done to it consistently, and they know that, like, the world knows this. If if someone had done what's been done to black people to them, it'd be full-on war constantly, and yet it's not. And so it's, you know, it's um, it's a reckoning of saying there are some things we have to heal ourselves, not because we don't want allies and assistance, but because we recognize we're still fighting to be seen as humans mm-hmm. and to not have our narratives dehumanized. I
0: think it's, uh, I was reading uh, something yesterday, I think it was Coates who said... Um uh, that racism is uh, broad sympathy for some, yeah. and broad skepticism for others. 100. Uh, yeah. percent And that um, I mean, and I mean, there's definitely I've met some of them, just like open bigot racists that yeah. are like f- comfortable with their racism, but most, most think they're not racist. It's just they apply it's like uh, I think the opioid uh, versus crack. Yeah. Epidemic is the perfect example there. Yeah. Uh, when it was crack, it's their drug addicts, it's their fault. We should put them in jail. When it's opioid, it's a scourge affecting our, our children, and, uh, and we need compassion and, and care. Uh, and it shouldn't be too hard to convince everybody to be sympathetic for everyone, yeah. I wouldn't think. Um, thank you very much for sitting with us. This was you. a fascinating this conversation. I'm sure amazing. everyone learned a lot. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day here at Nexus.
1: I do and I look forward to bringing more African American philanthropists and <laughs> yes, change please. makers to the table. I want you to know we are out there. <laughs> um, and please. and and I say we, I am probably the meekest of them all. And well, so please. there are I'm
0: Sure that's not true.
1: There are phenomenal people doing great work. So at the, at the end for, of at, at the,
0: the end point. of most interviews I ask uh, I usually ask my guests if they would be willing to review a few unfunded proposals last round
1: of course I will so
0: we will uh, sometime in February I okay. will send you a few uh, um, would you like uh, is there any particular you want the um, uh, any particular sort of area that you would like to read
1: I'm very passionate about education mm-hmm. Okay. And so we I would love that. We always get some education proposals. Education and I love arts programs. And Terrific. So I would love to hear, see education and arts programs. All
0: right. If you're out there and you have a good education or arts proposal, you should send it in and maybe Candace will read it. And maybe she'll introduce you to Holly Robinson Pete or something like that. I mean,
1: we love <laughs> it. Let's
0: do it. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.